Good morning. This week we are continuing our series in uh, Nehemiah called Hope Amid the Ruins. Uh, we're, we're following Nehemiah as he is called to be part of this rebuilding project to lead Jerusalem, to be this, this city that was meant to be a visible sign of God's shalom for the world. And I hope that the, the parallels are being grasped between the text and this kind of cultural moment that we're in. Uh, this morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 5. Uh, they are about halfway through the project of rebuilding the walls. God has carried them through some opposition from the outside, but the, the worst threats actually don't come from outside the community, but from within. And when hardship comes, and it always comes, the people start to abandon a common vision and it becomes every man for himself. And so the story shifts from the fractured walls of the city to the fractured community within. And so we come to Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard this outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. 
we will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robes and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep his promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I'm going to get a new mic pack right here. All right, and with, and with that, we are back. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for your word. Uh, we give you thanks for a tech crew who is on their feet. And God, we give you thanks that we can be together even though we are apart. And by the power of your spirit, we ask that you would draw us into community. That we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We ask this in the name of the one who is the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 2004, the U.S. men's basketball team entered the Olympic competition as odds-on favorite. And to date, uh, the U.S. men's team had only lost two games in Olympic competition. Once in 1972 against the Soviet Union, one of the most controversial basketball games in Olympic competition, and once in 1988, which was the very last year that the United States sent a field of amateurs into competition. 1992, dream team. Hands down, the best team of basketball players ever assembled on the planet. Do not come at me with your 2012 team, had better stats and was more athletic. I don't want to hear it. 2000, 1996, they don't drop a game. So 2004, it contained this, this elite team yet again. It had Tim Duncan, LeBron James, Allen Iverson, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony. But in their first game of competition, they lost by 19 points to Puerto Rico, whose best player, Carlos Arroyo, was third in line behind uh, John Stockton and Mark Jackson on the Utah Jazz. No disrespect to Arroyo, solid ball player, uh, but third in line behind two legends. So how is it that this Goliath U.S. basketball team with its marquee players got defeated by a David whose best player was a third stringer? Just like any finely tuned machine. When they're out of alignment, you know, the, the positions actually can start to work against each other. When the point guard is only interested in attacking the basket, the center has to come forward and set high screens. He can't crash the board for rebounds, and this team starts to lose sight of the vision. They start bickering with each other, and then pretty soon, the whole thing starts to fall apart. Before you know it, you go home with a 5-3 and three record, with a big old chip on your shoulder, because you have just lost more games 
in 16 days than your countrymen had lost in 62 years. Well, Nehemiah finds himself in this rebuilding project with the vision falling apart. Uh, The work is starting to take its toll. The problems are starting to stack up. For starters, there is a famine. It means that the people are running low on food. Those who would ordinarily be working the fields, they've had to abandon their crops so that they could take care of the project of rebuilding the wall. And now there is grain available, but not everyone can afford it, especially since they took time off their work to attend to this building project. Some of the people have had to mortgage their farms, their vineyards, others their homes, just to get by while all of this construction is taking place. Add to that another layer. They still owe the Persians a hefty tax, and in order to pay this tax, they are forced to put their children up as collateral to their fellow countrymen, which means that if they cannot come up with the funds, soon those children will be sold into slavery. Pretty soon, it is starting to look to everyone like the wall is the problem. The community starts to fall apart. Maybe you've been in that spot where you have been working hard in your job to try to make something work. You, You get to the point, though, where it feels like no matter how much blood, sweat, and tears you pour into it, the whole thing is just destined for failure. You, your, your team is doing different things. You, you're paying your dues at the office, but at the end of the day, it feels like you are laboring for someone else's vision. And then the needs of the present start to overshadow any sort of hope you might have for the future. Okay, but there's one more layer. On top of all that, the people are crying out to Nehemiah, who is now the governor, that Jerusalem's elite class, their city officials, they are actually the ones who are racking up the profit from their hardship. The nobles had a little bit of extra grain, they had a little bit of extra money, and so they saw this crisis as an opportunity for them to pump up the interest rates and inflate the the cost of grain. They are the ones who are holding the mortgages on their countrymen's fellow homes and farms. And worst of all, they are accepting their own countrymen as collateral, allowing their neighbors to literally borrow themselves into slavery, a direct violation of the law of Moses. It is as though everyone has forgotten that they are a a people who God has freed from slavery. That is the foundational part of their story and their life together. And so whatever momentum has been gained, whatever alignment has been built, whatever foundations of community have come together in this common vision, all of that stuff is starting to crack and fall by the wayside. It turns out nobody wants to be in service of a vision, no matter how good, no matter how beautiful, if it is not going to put food on the table. What good is it to have a wall if you've got nothing left to defend? Well, this gets to the heart of the problem. Nehemiah 5.1 notes that the people raised sakat, which the NIV translates as a great outcry. It's a, it's a word that harkens back to Exodus 3.9, when the people cried out to God over their enslavement by the Egyptians. Okay, pause for just a second. Time to nerd out on the Bible, all right? So, so last week, I mentioned that the walls did 
two things. They created a negative space outside of the community uh, that served as a kind of distinction point between the threats that came from the outside. Uh, right, like when you think about a wall, for all intents and purposes, you think about military defense. It's about keeping the threat from coming inside. But the walls also created this positive space on the inside, the space where virtue and where culture are, are grown and nurtured. This was the space where the people told the story of God's deliverance. It's the space where they, they spoke of God and His redeeming actions. It's the space where they were shaped by the story of who God was and what God longed for the world. It's the place where shalom was on full display. And, and this is why this is so important, because the story that the Bible tells about the exile is not about how Israel was primarily overtaken by enemies from the outside. No, the story the Bible tells is about how the destruction had already taken place on the inside. Because the walls that were supposed to enable their life together as a community failed to shape them into a people whose life together showed God's desire for the world. And this breakdown, it included worshiping other gods, but it also included the kind of oppressive economic practices that we see right here in Nehemiah. I mean, that is a, a big part of what Amos and Micah and Ezekiel are preaching against. It's what Jeremiah is lamenting. These whole middle parts of the Bible are an affirmation that, that God is, that God reigns, that God will not forget or abandon his people, but neither will God settle for his people believing less about him than that he is a God who longs to see justice and mercy and grace and goodness flow out into the world. Ismael was not ultimately defeated because the walls failed to keep the threats out, but because the walls failed to shape the people in their worship and in their life together to worship the God that really is. And so Nehemiah, I mean, he sees this really clearly. He knows that there cannot be authentic worship of God while people are neglecting the heart of God. This law and its, its vision of Jerusalem as a flourishing community, it is the foundation on which worship can thrive. And if those foundations are broken, I mean, you, you just can't ignore them. You can't try to build over them. You actually have to stop construction Go back and fix what's broken. And I think a lot of us have seen this or experienced this kind of on a, on a personal level. You either know it from yourself or you've seen it in others that you've experienced the pain of, of family life where a child is failing to flourish, either because of challenges or because of rebellion and, and mom and dad, they don't really know what to do other than to worry. And so for a while, everything in family life starts to kind of orbit around this child and this, this broken kind of situation. And at first, everybody's okay to kind of be on cruise control. But then over time, the longer it goes on, family values, the kind of constructive vision of what 
God desires for the family. It starts to kind of fall by the wayside. And then, I mean, sometimes you don't even take time to, to talk about what God's vision is for the family at all. And all the while, resentment starts to build and the team starts to pull in different directions. Or maybe you have experienced misalignment in a church community, a church that has gotten off task, gotten off mission. I mean, there's been a lot of attention to the decline of religious identification of younger adults over the years. I mean, I have seen churches go absolutely nuts, obsessing over solutions, assuming that the answer is to kind of just add a program or, or bring on a staff member who wears, you know, cool hats and skinny jeans or a lead pastor that has nice long hair. <laughs> I mean, oftentimes they end up spending energy obsessing over these solutions without even really identifying the problem. And when that happens, you can lose sight of the vision of crafting the kind of community that seeks first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and, and trusting that God will actually use that kind of a community to demonstrate love and, and grace and beauty among its neighbors. It's so easy to get misaligned, especially when we perceive a threat. So what do you do when it's the third quarter? When the vision is in danger of falling apart? Well, like any good coach, you call a timeout. The, the, the problem is not going to fix itself, and that's what Nehemiah does. He sees that a community united on vision is critical for getting this wall rebuilt. And so he takes a couple of really practical steps to kind of bring things back into alignment. And the first thing he does is he gets mad. And, and we tend to think that anger is a destructive emotion Rachel Lockman and I did a podcast in the fall uh, about Jesus and anger, and one of the things that she pointed out was so helpful is that sometimes anger is actually the only response that reveals the heart of God. God gets angry at injustice, and those who seek to honor God, well, we can get mad about the things that grieve God. But lashing out in anger, that ends up being the place that we tend to wound people, Right? And so that leads Nehemiah to distance and discern. The text tells us that I pondered these things in my mind. And that creates the space for him to move from reaction to response. I have found this over and over in my life that I do not make the best decisions when I am angry. I mean, that's when you start to send, you know, that, that sharp email. Um, or that's when you lose it in traffic or when you start watching the news and then get on Twitter. Nothing good happens when you watch news and then get on Twitter. And, and there's a neurological basis for this. The part of your brain that fires up when you're angry, it, it kicks in before the part that governs long-term judgment. And I know a lot of people have pointed to Jesus turning over the tables as a sign that kind of visceral anger is used for good. Fair enough. All I got to say is that when you are as fully formed as Jesus, you can start turning over tables. For most of us, it's like, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? That's where we live. Most of the time when we're angry, 
It's an emotional signal in our body that something is not right. Something's not the way it's supposed to be. And stepping back allows you the space to distance and discern whether that something that isn't right is the situation before you or whether it's you. And, and sometimes you don't need much distance. Sometimes it's real obvious why you are angry. But the point is not to sit in your anger. The point is to work toward a constructive solution so that you can be a hopeful rebuilder. Maybe in that pondering, Nehemiah went back to the Torah where he would have read, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take any interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at profit. I mean, that's real awkward. (laughs) I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. At any rate, stepping back allows him the space to see what it is that is really going on here. And it's, it's not primarily because the wall needs to get fixed. No, now it is because the community needs to get fixed. That's the priority. And so having kind of processed his anger and arriving at a conviction, this leads him to direct confrontation. And in verses 8 and 9, he brings the ones who have done the wrong all together, and he just kind of lays it out. As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. It's the power of direct and clear confrontation. The thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of our nations, our enemies? And you can see how in just a few words, he he brings into focus that the, the quality of their life together, the ways that they live out goodness and justice and mercy Fundamentally, that's all about God's reputation in the world. The whole reason for rebuilding is so that Jerusalem can live out its call to be a blessing to the nations, to be the light of the world. And and when the community is fractured, it says to the world the same thing that the broken down walls say. It says that your God is no different than all the other gods around And so Nehemiah reminds them that together, in in law, in faith, they actually have the resources for everyone to thrive. He says, this is not a time to seize economic opportunity. This is a time to serve and bless. This is not the time to look to your own interests, but to look to the interests of others, as Paul will later tell the Philippians. Benedictine nun Joan Chittister captures this link between vision and witness and community really well when she writes this. Neither communities nor families exist for themselves alone. They exist to witness to Christ and in Christ. They exist to be miracle worker to one another. They exist to make the world the family it is meant to be. Their purpose is is to draw us always into the center of life where values count and meaning matters more than our careers or our personal convenience. 
And in order for that to happen, she goes on, we have to share a common vision. We have to want good for one another. We have to be able to draw from the same well together. We have to be committed to the same eternal things together. What we want to live for and how we intend to live out those values are the central questions of community. Without that understanding, communities fail, marriages dissolve, and people leave religious life, and nations go to war. Nehemiah is asking these real big questions of community. Are we going to be for ourselves or are we going to be for each other as the family of God? Will we be a story about a broken community or will we be a city shining on a hill, a light before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven? One of the things that I love about this community is the way that you care for each other, even when it's hard. You did your top 10 list, so let me give you at least one of mine. I love how generous this community is. I love how you embody the value of relationship. Uh, A member of I met for coffee a little bit earlier in the year, and he, he said to me, Look, I've had the best year of my life financially. And I know other people haven't. I want to know how I can help. Tell me where the need is. I will write a check. I love that. I love how you give whenever there's a need. I love how whenever members of the community are crying out, you are there to respond. And and as I think about what being a hopeful rebuilder looks like, particularly in our life together as a community on the other side of this, I I definitely think it is in continuing to build on that strong foundation that even that this time of isolation has not taken away from us. If anything, I think we have learned in this time that we need each other more than we think. Our life together becomes the tumbling ground where we learn to carry each other, where we learn to tell the story of what God is doing what God's generosity has done to us and in us so that we can live that story outside of the walls. That is what the world longs to see from us. And so I wonder what it would look like for our community groups to begin adopting some of our local mission partners so that together we can lean in in service and generosity and and in those places discover again that place where mercy and joy intersect. And in those ways, we can practice the way of Jesus together for the renewal of our city. A city that has seen so much pain, so much division. And and that's just the school board meetings. And by leaning into relationship with those partners like Beacon of Hope, whom we heard about this morning in the children's time, it allows us to hear where the broader community is crying out. Howard Thurman once said that it's those who live with their backs against the walls that often have the most to teach us about justice. And as as Jesus taught us with the woman who gave everything she had to the temple, it's often those who have the least that teach us the most about generosity. But I wonder if before we're, we're ready for any of that, part of the work of rebuilding 
is that we need to see where the walls of relationship have kind of collapsed around our own lives. I have more than a hunch that this year has helped us to see where we are out of alignment. So if you're married, there's just, there's too much at stake to allow discord or unity to pull you in opposite directions. If you're raising kids, it's, it's far too easy to go from activity to activity, weekend to weekend, without ever asking the question, what is God's desire? What is God's vision for this family? And are we actually moving in that direction? Or are we just kind of skimming along the surface? And wherever you are, you're not doing it alone. That's where the mercy and kindness of community can restore you. Well, for Nehemiah, this, this crisis of community actually has a little bit of a storybook kind of ending. Uh, the nobles repent, and not just in their words. They actually pay back all that they charge in interest. They give back all of the fields, the vineyards, the houses. They do that to repair the damage that they've caused. And in the end, the amazing thing that happens is that their repentance actually causes them to go into worship. That's what true worship is. It's living in alignment with God's desire. That's why every week we come to worship somewhere near the beginning of the service. We confess and we repent and we receive the grace we need to step, to live in step with the kingdom. And the reason we do that is that we can't ignore the things that pull us out of alignment with God's heart. I mean, it's one of the things I love about the church. It's one of the only places where you come and you admit that you are wrong. Where you don't measure up for God's vision for the world. And in a world that prizes strength over vulnerability, we come each week because we are captured by a vision of the kingdom. This place where the heart of God is revealed so that we can tune our hearts to his. And then, as Rusty prayed, to to look out on the places where we live and work and to see see where those places are out of alignment and so that we can be witnesses to hope, the hope that the kingdom brings. Well, like Nehemiah, it starts with listening and seeing where we are out of alignment and then we come together to receive the kind of teaching and practices and community to help us live in better alignment. One of those practices is coming to the table each week, remembering the story of Jesus' life in community with his disciples, and hearing the story of his broken body and poured out blood shed for the forgiveness of sins so that they could go from that place and be witnesses to God's grace and mercy in the world. And so, friends, as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Let us lift up our hearts. Let us give to God our thanks and praise. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you.
Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so friends, it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming his dying until he comes again. So friends, as we come, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.